What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the WTH Breakout, the West Virginia Ghost Stories edition. Got a good one coming at you today. Um, this one um, is actually one of the first ones that caught my eye. Um, this is on the Greenbrier Ghost, and this is a pretty interesting story. It's one of the um, only cases in, I think, court history where a ghost or um, something from the afterlife helped convict somebody. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, and this actually is only, this is probably one of the stories that's like closest to me. It's only 48 minutes away. Um, I have not gone there yet, but I'm planning on it. And when I do, I will be posting pictures. It's a pretty cool uh, old church with a cemetery uh, right next to it. And the tombstone actually says right on it, the Greenbrier Ghost. And there's um, a lot of uh, signs on the road that advertise it as well. Uh, so the locals kind of, you know, I think maybe enjoy having the tourism. I'm not sure, but hopefully you guys find the story interesting. Um, it touches on a, a lot of, uh, murder and mystery and, um, just is a very, very interesting story. So I hope you enjoy it. And, uh, before we get to the story, I'm going to play that trailer that I played, uh, a while back, um, one more time just to kind of kick off the series, just in case you haven't heard this, um, the trailer yet. That kind of encompasses, I don't know, maybe hopefully the feelings of all these cool, weird, paranormal, creepy stories coming out here from the beautiful mountain state. So enjoy. Almost heaven. And some believe that their spirits might still linger along the tracks. West Virginia. Ghost hunters come ready to wander the night. For one local ghost hunter, even the spirit of an ancestor was in the room. In 1897, Trout Shue sat imprisoned in the West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville. 
bragging that he was going to have seven wives. Three of them were out of the way, with shoes serving time for the murder of number three. He seemed unconcerned about his incarceration and exuded confidence that soon he would be on his way to freedom and his desired collection of wives. The story of Shu and his unfortunate former wife, Zona, is one of the most famous of all ghost stories and certainly ranks as one of West Virginia's most unusual hauntings. The ghostly remnants are faint today, but the story itself still haunts. The Greenbrier ghost is the only known case, at least in the United States, in which a ghost helped to convict a murderer. The case of the Greenbrier ghost features three motifs prominent in folklore concerning ghosts. The inability of a murder victim to rest until the truth is known, the return of the dead for revenge, and the disturbance of a sleeping person by a ghost. The Greenbrier ghost is not a fictional tale, but a real case in which the ghost of a murdered woman may have played a role in solving her own death. Little is known about the life of Elva Zona Hester Shue. Her birth year is given as 1876, though records differ, and she may have been born in 1873. She lived near Livesey's Mill in Greenbrier County. In 1895, she had an illegitimate child, but records do not indicate the identity of the father or what became of the child. In 1896, Zona, the name she preferred to use, met Edward, or Erasmus, Stribling Trout Shoe, a handsome stranger who had moved from Droop Mountain in Pocahontas County to Greenbrier to work as a blacksmith for James Crookshanks and start a new life for himself. The two were quickly attracted to each other, and they married shortly after meeting on October 26, 1896. They took up residence in a log cabin on Sewell Mountain. Zona's mother, Mary Jane Robinson Hester, opposed the marriage. She did not like Shu or the idea of her daughter marrying a stranger. Zona's mother had good reason to disapprove. Shu had a dazzling personality and completely beguiled her daughter but he had left a checkered past behind him at Droop Mountain. He was renowned for his excellent singing voice, his singing of sacred songs and his great physical strength. He liked to boast about his strength and he often bullied others. He had been married while living at Droop Mountain and the locals there knew that he regularly beat and whipped his wife. In the winter of 1886, words circulated that Shu had once again whipped his poor wife. A mob got together and decided to teach him a lesson by dunking him into ice-cold water. On the night they set out to grab him, the temperature was 10 degrees below zero. The mob went to Shu's house at Rock Camp Run and grabbed him. After a brief struggle, the bully Shu broke down and begged for mercy. The mob dragged him to a nearby water hole, broke the ice, and dunked him in, informing him why they were doing it. Then they released him. The next day, Shu took out warrants against four of the mob. A trial ensued, but the warrants were set aside due to lack of evidence. 
Shu's wife fled back to her father's home. Shu was arrested and jailed for stealing a horse. While he served time, his wife divorced him and remarried. After his release, Shu went back to Droop Mountain and married again. Reverend R.R. Little, a Methodist minister, was summoned to Shu's home atop the mountain to perform the ceremony. When he arrived during the afternoon, Little found that the bride-to-be, whose name was Lucy, was quite young, and he wondered if she was even of legal age. She said Shu was out securing the marriage license. Little waited patiently, but Shu did not return until about midnight. The license he had obtained was issued in Greenbrier County. Little said he could not perform the ceremony because Droop Mountain was in Pocahontas County. Shu pointed out that the county line was less than a mile away and it was moonlit night, so the wedding could be moved to Greenbrier. Little agreed, and they traveled to the side of the mountain that was in Greenbrier. When Little got to the part of the ceremony where others can object to the marriage, he intoned, If anyone has any objections, speak now or forever hold your peace. There was silence, and then the pastor himself spoke up. I object, he said. Shu demanded to know why. Little replied that the bride was a mere child. As recounted in The Greenbrier Ghost and Other Strange Stories by Dennis Dietz, Shu said, None of her people are present. It's now one o'clock in the morning, and we are all here in the country road. A marriage ceremony is a sacred rite and should be at least be performed under ordinary circumstances. I cannot help but think that there is something not right in this case, and I will go no further, so there will be no wedding as far as I am concerned. Later, Little learned that Lucy was indeed underage. She was only 15. She had met her and persuaded her to visit her uncle on Droop Mountain. Once she was away from her parents, he talked her into marrying him. Undeterred by Little, Shu and Lucy were married the next morning in Frankfurt. About eight months later, Lucy was dead. The circumstances were mysterious. She was said to have died either in a fall or being struck in the head by a rock. Soon after that, Shu was in Greenbrier, mesmerizing Zona. The marriage between Zona and Trout lasted about three months. In early 1897, Zona fell ill and went under the care of Dr. George W. Knapp. Shu appeared to be attentive to her. On January 23rd, Shu went to the home of Anderson Jones, a black boy of about 11, and asked if the boy could do some chores for Zona. His mother said yes, but he had other things to do first. Impatient, Shu came back four times to inquire when the boy would be available. When Jones was finally able to go to the shoe house, he discovered Zona's body laying on the floor. She was stretched out straight with her feet together, one hand by her side and the other laying across her body. Her head was inclined slightly to one side. Jones ran home to tell his mother and then went to the blacksmith shop to tell Shu. Dr. Knapp was summoned and arrived at the shoe household in about an hour. By then, Shu had already carried his wife's body upstairs and strangely dressed it up in her Sunday best. A dress with a high neck and stiff collar secured by a big bow and a veil covering her face. 
While Knapp attempted to determine the cause of death, Shu remained planted by his <laughs> wife's side, cradling her head and upper body and sobbing in apparent great distress. Because of Shu's tremendous display of grief, Knapp made only a cursory examination. He observed slight discolorations on the right side of Zona's neck and right cheek. When he tried to examine the back of her neck, Shu erupted into such protests that Knapp ended the examination and left. Initially, as related in Dietz's book, Knapp announced the cause. It is an everlasting faint. Her heart had failed. He officially recorded the cause of death as childbirth, although it is not known for certain whether Zona was pregnant. For two weeks prior to the tragedy, Knapp had been treating her for an undisclosed trouble, which could have been general health issues or female issues. One of the most common causes of death among young women was complications from childbirth, and Knapp may have ultimately fallen back on that for lack of anything more specific. The next day, Zona's body in its coffin was transported by carriage to her parents' home across Sewell Mountain, 14 miles away, for her wake the following day. Shu stayed close to the body at all times. Neighbors who came to pay their respects noted that Shu behaved oddly. His moods changed from overwhelming grief to manic energy to agitation. He did not want anyone near Zona. He had placed a pillow at one side of her head and a wadding of cloth on the other side, explaining that the ministrations were to enable Zona to rest easier. He said the big scarf around her neck was her favorite and that she wanted to be buried in it. Nonetheless, People noticed that when the time came for the corpse to be moved to the Hester family cemetery, there was a strange looseness of the head. Zona's mother, Mary Jane Hester, was certain her daughter had not died on an accidental death. She had taken the sheet from the inside of the coffin and later attempted to return it to Shu. He refused it. She noticed it had a peculiar smell, so she washed it. The water turned red and when she scooped the water out of the basin, it was clear. The sheet was stained pink. Then she tried boiling the sheet and hanging it outdoors in freezing weather for several days, but the stain remained. To her, it was a definite sign that her daughter had met with foul play. Hester prayed that her daughter would come back from the dead and reveal the truth about how she died. Specifically, she said later, she wanted Zona to tell on Shu, as she suspected the blacksmith of murder. Her prayers were answered within days. On four nights, Zona's ghost reportedly appeared and awakened her from sleep. Zona was wearing the dress she had died in and appeared solid, like flesh and blood. When Hester reached out her hand, Zona disappeared. The next night, Zona appeared again and talked to her mother. On the third night, Zona came again, and on the fourth night, the ghost described in detail her murder. Her husband had been abusive and cruel, she said. He had attacked her in a fit of rage because he thought she had no meat cooked for supper, and had grabbed her head and broken her neck. To illustrate, the ghost's head turned completely around on the neck. Hester went to the prosecutor, John Alfred Preston, and demanded an investigation. It is unlikely that he agreed simply on the basis of a ghost story. However, 
the local rumor mill continued to grind about Zona's mysterious and untimely death, as well as this odd appearance of her corpse and her husband's strange behavior. Moreover, Dr. Knapp admitted to the prosecutor that his determination of Zona's cause of death might have been in error. Preston ordered Zona's body to be exhumed. Shu vigorously opposed the inquest. He publicly said that he knew he would be arrested, but stated, they will not be able to prove I did it, thus indicating at least knowledge that his wife had been murdered. Zona's body was exhumed on February 22, 1897. An autopsy revealed a broken neck and a crushed windpipe from the strangulation. There was no evidence of violence to other parts of her body. Preston informed Shu, we have found your wife's neck to have been broken. Shu looked distressed and said in a low voice, they cannot prove I did it. He was arrested and charged with first degree murder. He pleaded not guilty. While Shu awaited trial in jail in Lewisburg, more information came out about his unsavory background and criminal record. Meanwhile, Shu remained in good spirits, no longer appearing to grieve. He bragged that he wanted to have seven wives, and since Zona was his third, and he was only 35, he stood a good chance of realizing his ambition. He said repeatedly that his guilt could not be proved. He wondered why no one suspected the black boy, Jones. If Shu did indeed commit the murder, he may have set the boy up for possible blame. All the evidence against Shu was circumstantial. It is doubtful the case ever would have been tried in modern times. Nonetheless, the trial commenced in late June 1897 in District Court in Lewisburg and lasted for eight days. Numerous people testified against Shu. Mary Jane Hester's ghost story was hearsay evidence and Preston did not go into account in detail. However, the defense raised the story when she was on the stand, perhaps in an effort to make her appear to the jury as unbalanced and insane. Hester recounted the ghost's assertion that Zona's neck had been squeezed off at the first vertebrae by Shu. According to Hester, Zona's visits were not dreams, but visions she had while awake. The defense attempted to get her to say they were dreams based on her distressed condition of mind, and perhaps so they could invoke the biblical injunctions against dreams. Hester stuck to her story and its details. She also stated that Zona described the house where she and Shu had lived, a place Hester had never seen or visited. The details were accurate. Because the defense had entered the story into the trial, the judge could not instruct the jury to disregard it. Most people in town had already heard the story anyway and believed it. Shu took the stand in his own defense on day six. His testimony was not cohesive, and he rattled on about unimportant events, but he passionately denied everything said about his alleged guilt. It was to no avail. After deliberating for one hour and ten minutes, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Two of the jurors would not agree to a death sentence, so Shu was sentenced to life in prison. The verdict did not satisfy many in Greenbrier. A lynching party formed on July 11th, but was thwarted due to a tip to the sheriff, who dissuaded the mob from acting. Shu was moved to the state penitentiary in Moundsville. He died on March 13, 1900, possibly from an epidemic of infectious disease that swept the community at that time. There is no record of what happened to his remains. Many questions remain about the case. 
In all likelihood, Shu did murder his wife in a fit of rage, and then attempted to cover up the crime. Even in the aftermath, not everyone in the area was convinced that he had committed murder. However, Hester's hatred of Shu was well known, and some believed that she framed Shu. They thought Zona had died a natural death, and Hester had broken her neck in the coffin to make her death look like murder. There was also talk that Zona had been pregnant with another illegitimate child, accounting for her quick marriage to Shu, and that Dr. Knapp had killed Zona while trying to abort the baby. Her neck was broken to cover it up. Another story that circulated held that Shu killed Zona when he discovered her pregnant with a child that couldn't possibly be his. A dead fetus supposedly was wrapped in the coffin wadding next to Zona's head. However, the autopsy mentioned nothing about pregnancy. More recently, doubts have been raised that Zona's mother ever saw the ghost. Instead, it is theorized that Hester concocted the ghost story to validate her own suspicions and give credence to a request for a post-mortem inquest. It does seem odd that the ghost of a young country woman with little education would specifically announce that her neck had been squeezed off at the first vertebrae, rather than simply broken. Perhaps, at trial time, Hester molded her ghost story to the findings of the autopsy, which had been reported in the media. The Pocahontas Times had stated, On the throat were marks of fingers indicating that she had been choking, that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck. In investigating the case, historian Katie Letcher Lyle found an overlooked clue that indicated that Hester might have fabricated the ghost story. Zona's death was announced in the Greenbrier Independent on January 28, 1897. In the same issue, on a nearby page, was a story about how a murder case in Australia was solved because numerous people saw the ghost of the murdered man sitting on a trail by a horse pond into which his body had been thrown. Years later, a dying man confessed that he had made up the story of the ghost, which others had believed to the point where they saw the apparition. The man said he had witnessed the murder, but he had been threatened with death if he divulged details. He concocted the ghost in an effort to have the body discovered. In her book on the shoe case, The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives, Lyle proposes that Hester read the Australian story and took a similar course of action to avenge her daughter's death. It is impossible to say whether she undertook the action deliberately or was subconsciously influenced by the story and actually believed in Zona's ghost. Regardless, Hester never recanted her story of her daughter's ghost and died in September 1916. Once she was convicted, Zona's ghost was not reported again. A state highway historical marker on Route 60 west of Lewisburg commemorates the case. It reads, Interred in Hereby Cemetery is Zona Hester Shue. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison, only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. The nearby small rural cemetery of the Sewell Chapel Methodist Church 
is actually miles away in the opposite direction in the area of Meadow Bluff and is hard to find. There are no road signs or markers pointing the way, but locals can provide directions. The White Clapboard Church was established in 1849 and its appropriate name actually comes from the circuit preacher who helped found the church. Zona was originally buried in an unmarked grave. She was reinterred here after the exhumation of her corpse for the autopsy. Her parents were buried alongside her. Her modern tombstone was erected in 1979, financed by the church in her honor. But many of the older grave markers, including those of her parents, are originals and beat the ravages of time. Visitors come to pay their respects to the woman behind the Greenbrier ghost and often place flowers and other tokens on her grave. Some say that Zona's presence can still be felt at her gravesite. Well, that does it for the story of the Greenbrier ghost. That one uh, kind of, you know, messed me up a little bit just because it's super, super sad. And uh, I was talking the other day to Wilson, the, you know, you know, Wilson, the other host. And I said, you know, this isn't too far for me. So I think I'm going to go visit the grave. And when it says it's uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, it's very, very true. Uh, it's you got to go down a bunch of side roads. Then you think you're getting lost. Um, now, the area where it's at, um, it's very, very low land, almost swampy, uh, very, very eerie. So a lot of the trees look dead, but they end up being green um, when you know spring hits. And it's very, very wet. And like, like I said, very swampy. Then you go up a hill and you can't really see the church um, until you turn on the road and you see the church on top of the hill. Old school looking church. It's white. It has its little mini bell tower. And I was expecting people to be there because um, it seems like it's a pretty big deal. And I get out there and there's no one. I'm the only person. And all I could hear is birds and there's like this creek down the hill and I'm looking at this uh, chained in fence area where there's a bunch of tombstones some of the tombstones there are legitimate tombstones some of them are just rocks with moss on it with no indication of who's in there or buried there and then there's this one uh, solid tombstone that looks rather new and in the story, it says that her uh, tombstone was uh, put in 1979, so hers was redone. Um, I walk over to it, and it says um, her name, and it says Greenbrier Ghost on it. And you can see where people have come and put flowers and different colored rocks, some coins, and just stuff like that. And it's just super eerie. Um, it wasn't scary. It wasn't any of that stuff. It just made me sad. Um, knowing that regardless of the story, whether you believe if Trout Shoe did kill her or if the mom made up the story about her, regardless, it, something happened to her because her neck was broken. That was something happened, obviously, and she was murdered. Whether the verdict was and conviction was right or not, we don't know. But I just felt really sad for her. Um, and her parents' grave is right next to hers. Um, honestly, at the time, I didn't know that was theirs. Um, I went, I took some photos and some video of it. 
And in the video, which I'll post to our Instagram, in the video, I say, uh, you know, this, there's a lot of old uh, tombstones out here. And I looked at the dates on the one next to her. And in the video, I panned to the left and you could see that it was her parents' um, tombstone. But it was pretty fun, uh, inter- you know, learning the story, then going out there and uh, experiencing, you know, part of this his- historical stuff out here in my area. And I can't wait to go up and travel to the other areas that I'm reading about and studying. And it's just, it's pretty neat. Um, but what, I mean, what do you guys think of that? I mean, do you guys, I mean, I know it's hard to tell and there's not a whole lot written about it. I mean, do you, if you believe in ghosts, do you believe that could be a possibility of that happening? Or do you believe that, um, you know, it was the mom's revenge? Cause at the beginning of the story, it's very, you know, plainly put that, her mom was against everything about this marriage. So would you put it past a mom to do something like that? Um, to wrongly convict somebody when something happened? Um, at the same time, this guy has a pattern of you know spousal abuse and everything. So who knows? I, I don't know. But it, it's, just a, it's a crazy story. Um, but thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I'm having a lot of fun doing these stories. Um, I'm going to try to get a few on here that are kind of funny. Um, I've done a little bit of research, um, on them and, uh, it's going to be really cool, but we're going to thank our sponsors, MSR arms for, you know, putting this whole thing on, make sure you use offer code WTH five at checkout for 5% off your entire purchase. Thin line brewing. They're still going strong till, uh, the end of may, I think I'm not sure sometime in may, but if you're in the Rancho Cordova area, please, you know, give them a visit shake their hand, wish them a good farewell as they venture out of California into Tennessee. Um, and I think you can still buy stuff online for the time being. So thinlinebrewing.com, they got some cool swag. Also wanted to thank, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley for writing the book that I'm getting these stories out of the big book of West Virginia ghost stories. It's an awesome book. So much information. Um, I believe she's passed away, but thank you. Uh, you can hear us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, pretty much anywhere where podcasts are. We are there. Um, on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, or you can go on therealwthshow.podbean.com. And if you want to, you know, be part of the conversation, let me know how how you like these. Um, if you have any ghost stories um, that you heard of in this area that I haven't talked about that you think I should look into, um, let me know. Um, you could do voice or text at 916-259-3030, or you could uh, email us at therealwthshow at gmail.com. So that's all I got. Um, hope you enjoyed it, and I will talk to you guys in a while.